0: Well, good morning so uh it's a long drive from rapid city to here not quite as long as if you leave the house late and have to speed to get down here a <laughs> little confession there um you know preaching is hard it's harder when guys like simon stand up and pretty much preach your sermon in the opening of the of the so thanks simon appreciate that um So now my brain's going 100 miles an hour going, okay, how not to say the same thing or or that. But, uh, hey, isn't it great to uh, have spent a week of being perfect and, and now come to church and continue being perfect? Isn't that funny how we do that? We come to church and everybody, well, how are you today? I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm good. Which are all words which we use to disguise perfect. Because we don't really want anybody to know <clears throat> that we're not. <laughs> and if any place, it's the best place, if any time is the best time to not be perfect, it's right here. Uh, Simon prayed that scripture out of 2 Corinthians. And I've often thought that if Jesus could sit down with each and every one of us and say, You, know, you want to know what my favorite thing about you is? that he would probably say your imperfections, your weaknesses, because, you see, that's where my grace goes to work, and that's where my power is, is made perfect. So I hope, if anything, today we all leave here knowing that it's okay to not be perfect, because the reality is Jesus is the only one that is. And when he told us, be perfect as your Father is perfect, he also said in that same sermon, let your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And boy, if you think about that for a minute, the scribes and the Pharisees did their best to do it right all the time, and we're supposed to even surpass that? Well, Jesus was a little tricky in that, because he said the only way that your righteousness can surpass their righteousness isn't by following a bunch of rules and being perfect, getting 100%, It's trusting him and letting his perfection take over and his grace to cover where our weaknesses are. So let's pray, and then I'll try out this sermon here. Father, um, thank you for loving us right where we're at. Thank you that you cover us with your grace because we, we can't do it ourselves. And thank you, Lord, that today, even if we've been walking with you for decades, we need your grace just as much, maybe even more, than we did the day we first met you. Um, Lord, we, we want people in this world to see that it's your grace that brings salvation. And they're going to see that best in us. So, Lord, let us be an imperfect people, perfectly loved by you. And, and may that be displayed. Uh, in our lives, you know, uh, authentically and, and purposefully and intentionally, um, so that others might come to know our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So yesterday, uh, I, I was a little bit of a nervous wreck because it was the uh, the launch event for a new ministry in Rapid City called Square One, which we're just still developing, really. We're, we don't know what this whole thing's going to look like yet. Uh, but what we did is we went to the School of Mines of Technology uh, and Technology, and we brought welcome baskets to the Rocker Towers, where there are 36 rooms in this tower, 36 rooms in that tower, and probably 500 residences, residents in within those two those two towers. And our welcome back baskets consisted of things that college students really need, like hand sanitizer, uh, paper towels, toilet paper dish soap, and, and laundry soap. Because when, they move, when you move into the dorms, you pretty much get those things. But when you move into the towers, these residents, they don't have those things. The, the kids move in, and there's no toilet paper in their bathroom. So someone came up with the idea said, maybe this would be a good thing to do. And boy, did they love getting those baskets. Uh, they just thought that it was great. And it gave us an opportunity to engage and to encounter several of the returning students coming into the School of Mines. But but while I was there, and I was standing in the parking lot, uh, kind of arranging the baskets, I, I was reminded of something going back, uh, well, nearly 40 years now. I used to work at the School of Mines in their media center. And they developed a thing while I was working there called a parking system. And if you were a student, you got a blue sticker. If you were a visitor, you didn't get a sticker. Um, if you were staff, you got a, uh, Yeah, I I can't remember all the different... But you all had a different color sticker, and they had different colored curbs there, and that's where you could park. Your sticker on your car had to match the color of the curb that you were parking at. And guess what? They did not a lot enough employee stickers and employee parking spaces so not only did they come up with this system for parking but they also came up with a system of enforcement which meant they hired some person to go around and write parking tickets and not only did you get a parking ticket you got a fine and you had to go to the administration office to pay that thing I hate to admit it but I'm not perfect and I had a stack of probably about a 30 parking violations because I'd show up to work with no place to park. And I went to the administrator, and I never once, I never once paid a fine because I went there every time, and I said, which would you rather me do, stay home or come to work and park illegally? Kind of thing because it's, that was my options and they said okay it, it's fine that's the only time I ever won an argument in court <laughs> so to speak. but it wasn't a real court you know but but yeah I had all the and I was thinking about that yesterday I thought man I had a I had a stack of parking violations and then I started thinking about other stacks of violations uh, that may accrue in life. And one of the things that I've seen reading through the Gospel of Luke, and Luke chapter 6, by the way, is our text today, and I should probably turn there. Um, And and Luke seemed to delight in this for some reason, is that Jesus built up a pretty impressive stack of Sabbath violations. It seemed like he was always getting in trouble on the Sabbath. Because, you see, there were rules about the Sabbath, and apparently Jesus was breaking those rules. So the title of my message today is, I'm kind of proud of this title. You kind of have to say it, wait, turn your R's into W's, you know, that kind of thing. But Jesus was a wascally wabbi. And now from this point on, I'm always going to think of the scribes and Pharisees as Elmer Fudd. You know? (laughs) But he was. He, he was a little bit of a rascal, and there is no doubt that we should have no doubt in our mind that Jesus was, in fact, recognized as a rabbi. If you read through the Gospels, you will see that he was called rabbi, identified as such specifically by Judas, by Peter, by Nathaniel, by the crowds in Capernaum, by Nicodemus the Pharisee, uh, two of John the Baptist's disciples called Jesus Rabbi. We believe they might have been Andrew and and the Apostle John. The disciples in general several times would say Rabbi in talking to Jesus. And there were two instances, one in which a blind man seeking healing and Mary Magdalene called Jesus Rabboni, which is the most intimate use of the term Rabbi, meaning my great master. So no doubt that Jesus was known as a Rabbi. Now, a rabbi is a title of respect. It was typically given to a Hebrew scholar or teacher, especially one who has studied and teaches the Torah. So, Jesus, we should be able to take this one home, was recognized as someone who had some expertise in what we call the Law of Moses. Okay? Okay? That's, that's who he was, that's how they knew him during his three, three and a half years of ministry in Galilee and Judea. Now also in that time, two of the most famous rabbis of, of you know contemporary to Jesus, who were influential, especially when Jesus was quite a bit younger, were Hillel and Shammai. Have you ever heard that phrase, well there's two schools of thought to that? Well, that may go back to these two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. Now, they were they both lived at the same time, and and they both were basically on opposite ends of the dog when it came to interpretation of the law. Uh, Shammai tend to be a little bit more rigid, uh, a little bit more legalistic in his interpretation of the holy writings. While Hillel, though he honored and, and valued the, the the holy writings as holy. Well, he was a little bit more, shall we say, flexible in his interpretation. And when you're reading through the Gospels, you'll often see people asking Jesus questions. Uh, Typically, experts in the law, other rabbis asking Jesus questions. And the reason they were doing that was they wanted to know which school of thought Jesus adhered to. Are you of Hillel or are you of Shammai? And he probably ticked a lot of people off because he would start off sounding a little bit like Shammai but end up sounding a little bit like Hillel. Now, he seemed to be more influenced by Hillel, and I don't think that's really the right way to say it because to say, well, was Jesus of Hillel or was he of Shammai is almost the same as saying, well, is Jesus Democrat or is he Republican? He is not a part of either of those things. Those should be a part of him because he's bigger than those things just like he's bigger than rabbinical schools. But it does serve us to know that most of the Sadducees and most of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were shamites. They were the school of the most rigid, legalistic approach to the law of Moses. So that's why he was often getting into trouble and often seen as a bit of a rascally rabbi in his day. Now, if we look at Luke chapter 6, well, it starts with a story about the Sabbath. And he's in trouble already. Uh, His disciples are picking wheat and, you know, wadding it up in their hands and and eating of it. And the Shamite saw that as a violation of the Sabbath. Rule breakers. Well, then we get down to verse 6. And it says, on another Sabbath. So, like I said, it's like Luke is almost having fun showing all the times Jesus got into trouble on the Sabbath. Here's how it goes, beginning with verse 6 of chapter 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there with a withered hand, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him. Get that? (laughs) This is what they do when they congregate uh, in church, so to speak. They're busy watching other people and how they're behaving. The scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Get that? So they're watching because they want to find a reason to bring an accusation against Jesus. By the way, I, I've, I've searched through the scriptures a few times, and, and I have found that there is one in the Bible that is described as the accuser of the brethren. You know who that is? That's the devil. That's his business, to look for accusations to bring against us. That's how he operates as the adversary, and sometimes he finds allies in the least expected places. So they wanted to see if they might find a reason to bring an accusation against Christ. And then we get to verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. Now, again, only God can do that. Only God can know what's in the heart of man. I can't do that. Uh, I might be able to, to judge a person's actions as good or bad, but I can never know the intentions of a person's heart. But Jesus could. He says he knew their thoughts, so he said to the withered man, or the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to destroy it jesus was so good at asking questions that you there was no escape from them and and he knew what these guys were thinking he knew what they were doing and what they were intending that day so he says let me bring a question to you is it better to do harm or is it better to do good on the sabbath should you save a life or should you take a life on the sabbath should you should you kill or should, and destroy or should you help and should you heal how do you answer that? And then, I love verse 10. It says, and after looking around at them. <laughs> How many of you had that, that elementary school teacher that had that look that could silence an entire classroom without a word, you know? I kind of imagine that moment because that no one's answering Jesus and he's just standing there taking the moment to look into the eyes of every single one of those would-be accusers. Making sure that They were all watching what he was going to do next. Because he knew they were looking for him. And then I love what he did to this guy. He says, stretch out your hand. You see, there's no way that Jesus could be accused of working. (laughs) He didn't do anything. If anybody did anything, it was the man with the withered hand. He stretched his hand out. He says, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And then I love the response. Verse 11 that the scribes and Pharisees have to this incredible thing that Jesus just did for this man. But they, and and anytime you see the word but in the Bible, it means there's a pivot here. There's a contrast that's about to happen. I've always wanted to write a book called The Biggest Butts in the Bible. And and it's all about these contrasts that, that come around. But it says, but they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Because you see, Sabbath violation. That's all they saw there. They didn't see a man getting healed. They didn't see a Savior behaving the way they expected a Savior to behave. Uh, this is not our Messiah. And before I get too hard on these guys, I, I have to stand here and say, guilty is charged. I don't know how many times I try to domesticate my Jesus. I try to make him behave in a way that I, I think he ought to behave. I think God ought to follow my rules. I spend way too much of my life trying to housebreak Jesus. And that's what they wanted to do as well. And that's why they didn't like him. You know, Jesus, again, is so much bigger than than we can imagine. And he doesn't operate the way we want him to operate all the time. It's because of who he is. But their response was they were outraged at what Jesus was doing here. So they said, what might we do to him? They're already beginning to plot Christ's demise. This is backed up in John chapter 5, by the way. Uh, John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, tells about another Sabbath. And it says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Did you get that? They were persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them and said, my father's working until now. I love this response again. Jesus says, oh, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath? My father's working right now. And, and he says, and, and so am I. I'm, I'm working. And by the way, Pastor Mark, when he's standing here on a, on a Sunday, which we kind of consider the Christian Sabbath, he's working. There, there is no harder work in the world on a Sunday than standing behind a pulpit and preaching. I kid you not, I am, I am physically and mentally exhausted. It doesn't matter whether I'm up here 20 minutes or all day long, and I can do both. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> I am just as wiped out no matter how long I am up here. I don't know why that is. It's supposed to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll tell you what, if it is, he's awful hard on these fleshly bodies when he's done using us. It's a tiring thing. It is work. But Jesus said, my father's working and, and, and I'm working. Now this made the Jews all the more angry because he equated himself with God in saying that. He said, I'm equal with God. But notice that they said this, they were all the more seeking to kill him. Now did you get that? On the Sabbath, the Pharisees were seeking to destroy Jesus Christ. Who's really the Sabbath breaker? In these stories. Well, I want to have us go home with about oh, six or seven things here that would be good to kind of chew on. So here's here's what I want to want to present to us today. And I say us because I don't spend time working on sermons. I spend time hopefully having sermons working on me. And so there's still stuff I'm chewing on as well here. But the first one is this: the Sabbath was meant to be good for you and relational. Between you and God. Let me, let me emphasize that again. The Sabbath is meant to be good for you and to help in your relationship with God. It's kind of like, look at it this way. How many of you uh, married guys out there are reminded that it's a good thing to have a date night with your wife once in a while? Sometimes my date night is running errands with my wife because that's the only chance we kind of get to have some time together. But it's good to have a date night. Well, did you know that the Sabbath is sort of God's date night with you? He instituted it. It was for him first. But he meant to include you and I in that as well so that we would have at least one day out of the entire week of craziness where it was just us, just God and us, hanging out together, enjoying one another Building a relationship with one another. It's relational. It's not about rules and rituals and regulations. It's relational. That's why the Sabbath exists. The other thing is, is it's good for us. When God instituted the Sabbath, he did it through the Torah to the Israelites. Why? Because they have been slave-driven for the last 400 years. They don't even know what a day off is. They don't know how to function. They had to be commanded to stop and do nothing for a while just so they can enjoy the relationship with God. And we are not that far removed from those Pharisees. We are our own slave drivers. We are way too busy. We are constantly on the go, constantly doing things, constantly trying to measure up, <laughs> So much so that we don't even know how to stop without feeling guilty. You know, you take a nap, you feel guilty that you just took a nap. I should have been doing something instead of instead of resting. You know, you're just kicking your feet back, laying in a hammock for a minute, and you lay there, and it doesn't take too long. Pretty soon you're thinking, maybe I should be doing something. and And, and that's what God's trying to stop us from he says yeah there's a lot of good things to do but there's there are times when it's just stop doing and be just be Jesus said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath he's in charge of how we operate that day he also said that Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath again pointing out this is something that's supposed to be good for you and then he asked that great question is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? There's lots of good to be done on the Sabbath. Let's say uh, Sunday's your day of rest. And boy, you're not going to do anything but just hang out with God. Well, remember, God still works on the Sabbath. And what if you go and you look at your neighbor's yard and, man, that thing needs to be mowed? And the reason it hasn't been mowed is, well, maybe your your neighbor's wheelchair-bound or or something like that. Something has happened that prevented him from being able to mow the lawn. And you've got to go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that sort of thing. Is it okay to mow your neighbor's lawn on the Lord's Day? I think so. I think it would be. I think it would be something that Jesus might do himself. And get another Sabbath violation. (laughs) in doing that. Another thing is we have to understand that the more extravagant the restrictions and regulations, the more extravagant the loopholes have to be to get around them. I I was a teacher at a Christian high school for a while and it had a dress code and I hated it. Uh, Basically, this was my school of thought. Either have no dress code or have a uniform. Because trying to interpret everything in between that was really, really hard. And I had more things to do other than to check out and see if that, that girl's skirt was a quarter inch too short or whatever it might be. I didn't need to be looking at their legs anyway. But that was part of my job, and I never understood why did we do that. And, and it was, I kid you not, the, the more extravagant the rules were in trying to enforce that dress code, the more loopholes those kids were able to find to get around them. And they would challenge it all the time. All the time. That's the way we all are. And see, the Jews were coming up with these incredible, extravagant rules. Uh, They had over 600, in Jesus' day, they had over 600 laws, commandments, that the the typical Jew was supposed to follow. And those were a combination of what's known as the mother laws and the daughter laws. The mother laws are the laws given to us in the Torah, of the Old Testament. The daughter laws were extravagance is added on to them for example thou shalt not plow on the Sabbath okay so let's not go out there and break ground on the Sabbath to plant crops and that sort of thing give it a rest well the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of enhance that rule a little bit let's say it's the Sabbath and you have a walking stick you know, a staff and you know you're out there walking and well we've all done this if you've ever held a walking stick in your hand you kind of drag it for a little while And if you were to cot on the Sabbath doing that, making a little furrow in the ground with your walking stick, Sabbath breaker, it it got even worse. We've all had that nasty lung cold, you know, where the stuff's in here, and you cough, and suddenly the stuff that's down here is now up here. And you're going, what am I going to do with that? And your brain says, you ain't going to swallow it. I know this is gross and nasty, but you kind of turn around as politely as you can. You kind of get that thing out of your mouth. And you look down at that and go, that's gross. So you take your toe and you take a little gravel from the parking lot or something and cover it up. Even if you did that, Sabbath breaker. See, they put all these burdens on man that even they themselves could not keep. So it's no wonder that when Jesus gave that wonderful invitation, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you a lighter yoke. Now Jesus wasn't saying just go free, you know, live free willy and nilly willy and all that sort of thing. Do whatever you want. But he was just saying, you know what? It's not about rules. It is about a relationship. So why do we come up with all these rules? Why do we have this propensity to, I don't know, to to take the things that God has given us for our good and and for our relationship with him and to turn them into man-made religious regulatory rituals? Why do we do that? Well, it's because we're not perfect. And it's because we... Well, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve were told, Don't eat of that tree. Of the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what that means there in the Hebrew mindset is there. The knowledge of everything between good and evil. So, what, what Adam and Eve were tempted to do in eating that, that forbidden fruit was to be like God. To know everything. To be, and, and, and in knowing everything, to be able to be the final authority. Of their lives, to be able to make the call over what was right and what was wrong. See, that's part of our brokenness. It goes all the way back to the, the fall of mankind. And in that brokenness, we have this desire to know everything. We have this desire to make up the rules for everything. And we have the desire to be the last arbiters and judges of everything. And so we need, in our fallenness, a structure of measurement. I need to know whether or not I'm Measuring up. The problem is, is that we don't use that instrument to see if we're measuring up. We use it to see if other people are measuring up. Because we know, we know none of us measure up. But all we have to do is measure up just a little bit more than the other guy. And we're good. Right? Well, both, both things are deadly. Trying to measure other people was never our job. And trying to set a measurement for ourselves that would determine whether or not we are the good and perfect Christian was never God's intention for us as well. Well, what about the law? The, the Bible says a lot about the law. Jesus says some things about the law. What, what are we supposed to do with the law? Well, do you know what we do as, as English people? We take Hebrew words and Greek words that are very specific, and then we try to squeeze them into English words that are very unspecific. The English language is constantly mutating. Have you noticed that? Fred and Barney were having a gay old time when I was a kid. It meant something completely different than it does today. Words change meaning in the English language. Well, it wasn't so much so back in the, the, with the Hebrews and the, Jew, or the, the, the Greeks. When you you take that English word law that we have in the Bible, we have to understand that that's what translators put in place for the word Torah. And it wasn't a good word. It wasn't a good translation. Torah basically means instruction. Because when you think of law, you think of something that's hard, fast, and rigid, right? Don't try to bend the law. Don't try to stretch it. Don't try to play with it. This is the way it is. It's black and white. Well, the instruction was never meant to be black and white, but to give the Jews guidelines on how they might live with God, relate with him, and be holy in the sight of other nations. But mankind turns that around and says, we're going to make it black and white, rigid restrictions. This is the way it's going to work. See, the law or the instruction, the Torah had some openness for interpretation because God knows it not everything applies exactly the same all the time the greeks had this word called nomos and when you read the new testament nomos is translated into law and it is the idea of the law of sin and death now that's a real thing sin and death the law of sin and death that does exist and guess what jesus did with it he abolished it completely broke it on the cross But the problem is, is we tend to take nomos and put it in place of the Torah, and we should never combine those two things. See, when Jesus came, he came to say, I've got some new wine for you. But this legalistic mindset is a wineskin that can't hold this new wine. So remember that God instructs us, doesn't legislate us, he instructs us in how to walk with him and how to be holy in the sight of people that don't know him now people say well what what about this christianity and i've been watching you guys some unbeliever might say and it it seems to me that i have to obey all these rules and if all of us are honest with ourselves sometimes that's the way we operate Like it's all about the rules, it's all about how I perform and how I do things and whether I succeeded or whether I failed and and, and that sort of thing. Well, if you're ever talking to somebody who doesn't believe, here's something that you have to help them to understand. Ask them this question. How many religions are out there? Oh, there's Buddhism, there's Hinduism, there's Islam. Uh, And pretty soon they've got a list that goes like this. All these world religions, right? There's only two. There's only two. One faith system is it's up to me. I have to obey the rules. I have to do it right. I have to earn my way. I have to get God's favor somehow. The other one is I can't do it, it's impossible. It's impossible for me in this flesh to please God, and the only way I could ever stand in his good favor is a thing called grace, where he does it for me and says, here, I'm going to give you a gift. And if you just believe it and trust me, you're good. You're good. That's all there is. And every world religion that exists out there falls into either the category of works or the category of saved by grace. And if we as Christians ever try to move Christianity into that category, then we're going right back to that tree. So it comes down to, what are we depending on? My ability to follow the law? Or my faith that Jesus fulfilled the law for me? and paid the penalty for that law that I could never pay. One last thing I want to give us is this. The Sabbath is not the only thing that God has given to us that is for our good and for our relationship with him. How about Bible reading? Okay, But we can do the same thing with Bible reading that the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. We can make it a system of measurement, And how many of us often feel guilty that we don't read our Bibles enough? Okay, that tells us something. We're in that old wineskin again. Please understand, I'm not saying don't read your Bibles. What I'm saying is understand that God gave us the scriptures to know him and to walk in him, to get instruction for our life and how he might fulfill through his spirit the things that we are lacking. How about prayer? Every single one of us is going to go to the grave wishing we prayed more than we did or better than we have and that sort of thing. Prayer, again, is not something that's supposed to become a measurement of how good of a Christian we are, but a means in which we're able to commune with God, to sit down and relate to him, to talk to him just like we would with our best friend. How about fasting? What, do people still do that? Some do, and some still use it as a measuring stick when instead it was about relationship with God. Attending church. was something that was given to us for our good, to be able to fellowship with one another in the presence of God. Again, relational. But sometimes we can use church attendance as that old measuring stick as to how good of a Christian somebody might be. See, we're all stacking up violations. We all are. And what Jesus mainly wanted us to understand is these things were for your good and for your relationship with God. It's not about measuring out and getting 100%. I mentioned that uh, teaching at a Christian high school, I had another problem other than the dress code, and it was this. I was the Bible instructor. And I had to have a lot of tough conversations with kids that were very upset because they thought their grade in Bible reflected their walk as a Christian. And I had to explain to them, you can still be a Christian and still be stupid. <laughs> Meaning if you, don't, if you don't do the work that's, that you should be doing, that's not a good thing. If, if you're not studying the information that's given to you, that's not a good thing. But God is never measuring us according to our Bible grade. Well, that is as a measurement is how well we're doing with the information that's given to us. It has nothing to do with our heart with God. Actually, those tough conversations were wonderful conversations because we got to talk about grace when we did that. But a lot of us aren't in Bible school, but we're acting like I didn't get hundred percent. I didn't get a good grade. I have flaws. Can you just say that for a minute? I have flaws. Okay. Which would you rather be measured by? Other people? Or by the God who fills beyond measure the things that you are lacking? Which would you rather be measured by? Here is the law as Jesus summed it up. Just love God. And love people. Because you can't love God unless you're loving people that he created in his image. And you can't love people created in his image unless you're loving God. So those two things kind of come hand in hand. But here's the thing that we often miss. Not only are we supposed to love God well and love people well, you're supposed to be loved well by God. We love because he first loved us. Would you just let God love you right where you're at? with all of your flaws, all of your imperfections, all of your violations, because he does. And the more we let God love us, it's amazing, the better we get at fulfilling the law of loving God and loving others. Just let God love you. Here it is. We don't use our spiritual disciplines to measure how good of Christians we are. At least we shouldn't. We should be using them as a means to nurture our relationship with a God that loves us flawlessly in spite of our flaws. Take that one home. God loves you flawlessly in spite of your flaws. Let's pray. Lord, if you needed perfect people to be your followers, you wouldn't have any. If you needed perfect people to build the church, well, Peter would have been disqualified. (laughs) Yet you used him. Lord, if you needed perfect preachers to stand in the pulpit, uh, the pulpits would be empty. If the church was supposed to be made of perfect people, there'd just be crickets here. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for understanding that we are broken. You knew it. You're not surprised by it. And thank you for your incredible patience, your incredible mercy, and your incredible grace that you pour out on us imperfect people. See, even my grammar's not perfect. Lord, may we go forth from this place hungry for the scriptures, not because it measures how good of a Christian we are, but because it measures how deeply we want to know you and to understand you and to to know how we ought to walk in this life. Lord, may we be a people that go forth in this place anxious to pray. Again, not because it, it's going to make us look good or, or something like that, but just because we desperately need to spend time with you and to talk with you, and not just talk with you, but listen to you. Lord, may we be a people that, uh, that look forward to the, the gathering of believers on a given Sunday. Again, not because it somehow goes on our report card, but because we, we, we desire to be with real people, authentic people that are just as flawed as we are, celebrating this amazing grace that you've given to us and coming together to know this wonderful Savior, this amazing Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that that trail of Sabbath violations led to the cross, where you and your perfectness died for us who was imperfect, so that all who might just believe find salvation and the forgiveness of sins. So, Lord, if there's anybody out here that's really striving hard to be perfect for you, um, would you set them free from that? And would you uh, let them cast that burden on you so that they can find rest for their souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.